Thanks for checking out this video. My name's Kiara, and I hope you enjoy this message from Redemption Church. This morning, what we're going to see is the tale of two camps, two different camps. One of my favorite movies is Heavyweights. It's an old, I think, in the, in the mid-90s movie, and it tells the story of two different camps. And at the end, these two camps compete. And the camp that you would think is going to win loses, and the camp that you're certain is going to lose wins. Two different camps. This morning, we're going to see something similar in this story. This last week, I was on a little family vacation down in West Virginia, and uh, my dad and I decided to kind of go exploring a little bit. So we crossed the state line into Virginia to see this kind of small town to see if there's anything cool in it. There wasn't. And uh, afterwards, we turned around to go back home, but we thought, well, let's take the you know more scenic route. Certainly, we'll be able to figure this out. And the 15-minute uh, drive home ended up taking an hour and 15 minutes. Uh, as we got kind of lost, not kind of, really lost, uh, and I had accidentally turned off my cell signal on my phone, and so I thought we just weren't getting cell signal, um, but really I had accidentally turned it off. And the more we got lost uh, as we were in the car, I was the one driving, um, there were two different camps that emerged in the car. One camp was enjoying being lost. The other camp was kind of grumpy. Not going to tell you who was in which camp, okay? I'll let you conjecture and arrive at your own conclusion. But the two camps very certainly emerged as we were driving. Eventually, we did get home. A tale of two camps. This morning, we're going to see Jesus uh, right after the story we talked about last week. And so uh, last week, Jesus hailed a paralyzed man who was dropped on a mat right in front of him through a roof. And after this incredible victorious, victorious moment, Jesus walks outside. And as soon as Jesus walks outside, the text in Luke chapter 5, starting in verse 27, tells us that he saw a tax collector, a tax collector, now, his disciples are around him, and the religious uh, people that had traveled great distance to oppose him, that were in the house that uh, witnessed the previous miracle, had followed Jesus out. And now they see Jesus, and he's looking at this tax collector. Now, for those um, who aren't familiar with the term tax collector, tax collectors were a part of the most hated group in Jewish society at the point. You're like, what's changed? Okay, so uh, tax collectors, though, they weren't just, you know, government officials. They were Jewish people working on behalf of the Roman Empire. There are two types of taxes, stated taxes and, and like duty taxes. The stated taxes would have been anything from, you know, your property tax. There was literally an existence tax that they had to pay, and then they had to pay an income tax, which in ancient Rome was 1%, not bad. And so they had those taxes, and by this point in time, that was pretty much regulated. Not a lot of corruption around the three stated taxes. But then there was the duty tax. And so what would happen is the tax collectors would just sit there by the market and they would watch you coming to market and they could say, ah, your cart. I haven't taxed that lately. I'm gonna tax you for your cart. Oh, the wheels on your cart. Actually, there's four wheels. I'm gonna need to tax you for each one of those. And the animal that's pulling your cart, that's gonna be a tax. And the goods that are inside of your cart, I'm going to need to tax those. And so before you even open up for business, you've been taxed four times. These are Jewish citizens doing this to their brethren. If the total amount of tax that they owed Rome was five cents and they collected a dollar, they would keep the 95 cents, making them very wealthy and very 
hated. They were known to associate and were kind of put in the same class as robbers and thieves and criminals. And so here Jesus gets done with his miracle. The disciples are around him and the Pharisees are around him too. And Jesus walks out and he sees the tax collector. And I bet the disciples were in the back going, oh, this is gonna be so good. This is gonna be so good. Jesus is gonna look at the tax collector and he's gonna tell him, you vile, greedy sinner. You are an abomination to your Jewish people. Jesus had the Old Testament memorized. He could have gone through and said, okay, uh, here is seven uh, laws from the old covenant that you are violating. Here's how you're not treating your own brethren well. You are the worst of the worst. Friend, you and I don't understand this story until that tax collector to us is the group of people that we find the most disgusting. The most disgusting. Like, like you're not figuring it out until, until um, you walk out, right? I'm just gonna throw out a couple of examples that offends anyone, that's okay. You're gonna walk out and you see a pride parade. Okay, you walk out after watching um, Fox News and you step out and the Democratic candidates are standing out there in front of you or vice versa. Right? Politics rouses us up more than anything, so we're probably gonna have to use it a lot during this sermon. You're not fired up enough until the person on the other side is the group of people that you are most disgusted by. Until you see Matthew as that person, we don't get the story. And so Jesus walks out and the disciples, oh my gosh, it's gonna be so good. He's gonna finally tell them that he and they are an abomination. They're the worst of the worst. And Jesus walks out and says, follow me. Hey, why don't you come with me? The disciples, what? I don't wanna be associated with that person. I don't want to be in the same group classified with them. Jesus, anyone but them should be able to go. How could you invite him into this? And Jesus looks at him and says, hey, follow, follow me. And you know what, Matthew, the tax collector, the wealthy tax collector with the best paying job in town does? He leaves everything. And he follows Jesus. Now, if the story ended here, it probably would have taken the disciples a little while to not be angry at Matthew and to not like exclude him from their little group, even within the smaller group of the disciples. And if the story ended here, there actually might have been a point where both the Pharisees and, and um, the disciples would have said, you know what? Here's how I'm going to look at this. Jesus just called this man out of sin. And so at least he acknowledged that what he was doing was wrong and he was evil and now he's turning from his sin. And so, you know what? That seems okay. Like at least Jesus called him out of his sin. The story doesn't end here. And like with most stories with Jesus, it can't end until somebody's deeply offended. But who's deeply offended is always what's interesting. And so we're gonna see now is the emergence of two camps. We're gonna call camp one, camp grace. Camp grace 
Matthew is going to represent. And we're going to see the effectual call of Christ go out. We have no idea why Jesus says, follow me. Matthew goes, okay. And Matthew was there, right? It seems like he was right out the door. So maybe he heard about the commotion. Jesus had gotten somewhat popular at this point in time. So maybe other uh, people had begun to hear the stories and they knew what Jesus was about. But the effectual call of Christ goes out, follow me. And Matthew says, deal. And he's in. So in Camp Grace, then, what does Matthew do? How do you know you're in Camp Grace? Well, there's three things that happen immediately. The first thing is Matthew leaves everything. We saw this a few stories ago when Peter did the exact same thing. And it reminds us that until we are ready to forsake all things on this earth for Christ, we are not ready to follow Jesus. Until we look at all that we can accomplish, all that we have accumulated, and all that we would desire as nothing compared to Jesus, we are not ready to follow Jesus. So the first indication that we've stepped into Camp Grace is that we're willing to leave everything else behind. Some of you know the story we're going to tell in a couple of weeks when there's a guy similar to Matthew with a lot of money. And Jesus says, cool, just leave everything and follow me. That's what everyone else has been doing. And that guy goes, oh, no, 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 no. Next thing that happens, Matthew is a bit of a partier, like those tax collectors like to do, you know? And so Matthew, next thing he does, he leaves everything. He rises, he follows Jesus. And then it says, and Levi in the text of Lucas is Levi, but it's really Matthew who's the same guy who wrote the gospel of Matthew. And Levi, or Matthew, made him Jesus. Why? Because when we receive grace from Christ, we pour grace back out, right? And we pour it out in worship of Jesus. So Levi made him Jesus a great feast, a great feast in his house. Matthew has just decided to leave everything behind. And so what he does now is he's going to throw a party, a massive party at great expense. I mean, this term great feast is used a couple of times and throughout the scriptures. And every time it indicates an expense, a great expense. And so here you have Matthew who spent his entire life at the expense of others benefiting himself. Now at his own expense wants to benefit others. That's the transformation of grace in a moment. And so now he's going to throw this great party to celebrate everything that he's going to do. And he's going to show us the second thing that people who have hopped into Camp Grace do. And that is they're going to leverage their resources to make sure that people know Jesus. And so Matthew looks at the money that he once had that he probably used to throw parties and um, make friends and celebrate other things in life like a good tax season. Now he's going to leverage all of his resources. We're not talking peanut butter and jelly here. We're talking like the nicest steak and seafood you can find. They didn't eat, did they eat steak? Uh-huh. Yeah, they could. Okay. Um, someone correct me on that later. Leveraging everything he has. Why? to get his friends in close proximity to Jesus. How do you know you've jumped from one camp to Camp Grace? Because you have a view of your resources that says, oh no, the reason I have these, the reason I have these is to leverage them for the kingdom of God. That's why I have them. That's what I'm going to do with them. I'm gonna leverage them fully for the kingdom of God. So that's what Matthew does immediately. He throws this great party, and guess who shows up? The people that are Matthew's friends. And there was a large 
company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them. So the third thing Matthew does here as he's jumped into Camp Grace is he's going to lead his friends to Jesus. He's thrown this big party and he invites not his new friends, the disciples, not the Pharisees and the religious leaders where he's like, okay, so now that I'm in this whole Jesus thing, I probably need to act more like those guys. No, he invites his tax collector friends. He invites those people, those people. And he has a party and he throws a massive party of those people. The people that the religious people who later Jesus is going to call the righteous, the righteous. So we'll just refer to them as the righteous. Later, Jesus is gonna refer to those people as the righteous. And Matthew doesn't invite the righteous or the good people, the moral people, the right people. He doesn't invite them to the party. Instead, he invites all of his tax collecting friends to the party to get them close to Jesus. He says he reclined a table with them. Later, this little idea would be turned into a phrase, friend of sinners. So if you ask the question, how does Jesus respond to the most vile of sinners, the most disgusting of people, the scum of the earth, those engaged in the sins that make your skin crawl? Oh, he becomes our friend. That's how. That's how he responds to them. He becomes their friend and he goes to their parties and he eats with them. A sign of full embracing. It is the highest seal of relational connection in his culture. I will eat with them. I embrace them. Now, at the end of the story, Jesus talks about calling them to repentance, but here's something we can't just say by, via the text. In the text, in nowhere does it say that Jesus teaches at this party, which might make some of us angry, like he was just there with them. Now, Jesus makes full, fully clear what his mission on earth is, and we'll get to that in a second. But in this particular story, in every other story we've read, we've seen Jesus doing what? Teaching. You know what he's not doing in this particular story? Teaching. You know what he's doing? Reclining. Jesus has put his feet up. He's grabbed an ancient wine. If you think that's just grape juice, you can think that, okay? And he's hanging out with people. Those people. So Matthew... He's all in Camp Grace. And then we have this interesting, you can throw that circle up. We have this interesting picture of the story. See, in, in the story, you have Jesus and the sinners and Matthew, very close. Then on the outside, it seems there are the disciples. And then outside of that are the righteous. And so when you look into the story and you ask the question, at the great party, at the great feast, who's with Jesus? the sinners. Who's on the outside? The righteous. Now, this story in and of itself would be super convicting and is very powerful. 
In fact, if you keep reading, you're going to see where the tension begins to arise. And the other camp is going to come up. You can take that down. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled, gargonzo, at his disciples. That's the Greek word. At his disciples, saying, why do you eat and drink with, I'm just going to say, those people? Why do you recline with those people? Now, Jesus' answer is important. But the question is, why do you embrace them? Why are you kind to them? Why are you friends with them? We see the second camp begin to emerge. We're going to call this Camp Grumble. Camp Gospel or Grace is one camp. There's people going into camp. They got campers. We know those campers. They've experienced grace in such a way that they're willing to leave everything. They're willing to leverage their resources, and they want to leave their friends to Jesus because of grace. And now we have Camp Grumble. Oh, if we were going to use words to describe the people that are walking into Camp Grace, we would call them sinners. We would call them disgusting. We would say they're an abomination. We would fill in the blank. That's who's walking into Camp Grace. Now, on the other side, we have Camp Grumble. Let me tell you about the people walking into Camp Grumble. They're highly esteemed in the temple. They follow lots of rules. Jesus calls them righteous. I think if he was writing, he would have used some quotes. But he calls them righteous. And you know who else would have called them that? Everyone in town. Everyone said, uh, they're the good ones. They have good behavior. They're righteous. They act well. They do everything that's right. And they're in what we're going to call camp grumble. They love to garganzo. They love to grumble about how the world is getting so bad. They love to grumble about changes at church, right? They love to grumble about circumstances in life. They love to grumble about everything, and they've got their own little camp grumble. And they're very righteous. I said the story would be powerful in and of itself, but here's what I think makes it even more powerful. Hop over to a little famous chapter in the scripture, Luke chapter 15. And you read the opening part. Then you hop over to Luke 19, another famous chapter in scripture. Luke 15 is the parable of three lost things that get found. It's where the song Reckless Love came out of. Luke 19 is the famous story of Zacchaeus. And in these three stories, we see three things in common. In all three stories, exact words used, three things in common are this. There's tax collectors present. Number two, Jesus engages in relationship with them. Number three, the Pharisees or the righteous are grumbling. All three stories. Guys, I think I figured something out. If you want to find the gospel, go to the party. If you want to find the religious people, listen for grumbling. See, how far do you take this? Well, there was a guy, his name was Paul. He grew up in Camp Grumble, and then he experienced grace. And his um, experience of grace didn't make him happy, healthy, and wise, by the way. You know what it did? 
It might have made him wise. You know, I did. He writes, I was beaten with lashes five times, beaten with rods three, shipwrecked three times, spent a night and a day adrift at sea. He says, I was tired. I was hungry. I was thirsty. I was cold. I was hot. And he never grumbles. And then he gets later on in the chapter and he says, you know why? Because his grace is sufficient. Because I viewed grace so beautifully. So incredible was grace that I couldn't see what was possibly worth grumbling about anymore. Grace was so incredible that anything I would have grumbled about, oh, it's okay. Have you seen how good grace is? That was Paul. He made the change from one to the next. So in Camp Grumble, what's happening? Again, a lot of grumbling. A lot of wondering why Jesus would hang out with those people. And they even ask, why do you hang out with those people? And Jesus tells them this. He says, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. There's a fourth commonality in the stories, and that is Jesus talks about bringing the sinner to repentance. The indicator that he's making is this, that the righteous in their pride and the righteous because of their good behavior and their morality cannot see their need for a savior. So Jesus says, why am I friends with them? Why do I go to their parties? Because it's exactly why I came. The question really isn't, why am I hanging out with them? It really would be, why would I hang out with you? You don't even think you need me. You have your righteousness. You have your good behavior. I've got to push this a little bit further. In all three of the stories all three of them. Jesus eats a meal with the tax collectors in all three stories. In all three stories, Jesus is eating with the tax collectors and the religious people aren't there. Eating the meal represents true, genuine relationship with the other person. True, genuine relationship with Christ. That's what the meal represents. Now you hop to the end of the story, you get to the end of Matthew, and you know what's going to happen? You know what Jesus says he's going to do someday? He says he's going to throw a great feast. You know what Jesus is going to do? He's going to leave everything in heaven to come down to earth and he's going to leverage his resources as the king of the universe to surround himself with the worst of sinners. Which means you go back into the story and you see the righteous people and you see Matthew, the vile tax collector, and ask yourself, who's playing the Jesus role? Matthew is playing 
the Jesus role in the story. Because Jesus says, someday I'm going to come and I'm going to throw a great feast. A great feast. We call the great feast heaven. So now we got to play it all together. If Jesus tells three different stories of him having a great feast with people, sinners, tax collectors, the worst of the worst, and in all three stories, that's who he's eating with, and the Pharisees aren't at the feast, what is he saying? He's saying that at the end of days, at the great feast, it's not just that the righteous or the Pharisees were mean or judgmental or bad Christians. It means they weren't at all. They're not at the feast. It means they're not in. Friends, here is the warning. Unless you look into this story and see yourself as Matthew, you don't get grace. Unless you look into the story and see yourself apart from his grace as the most vile, most disgusting, most disturbing, the worst of worst, and Jesus came to rescue you, then my fear would be that you're the righteous who thinks you don't need him. You say, well, how do I know? How do I know? I'll tell you how I know, how you know. Because when you've seen yourself the right way and you've experienced the grace of Jesus saying, follow me, you know what'll happen? You'll leave everything behind. You'll leverage every penny you've got for the kingdom. And you won't be able to not lead your friends to Jesus. And there will be nothing worth grumbling about compared to the beauty of grace. So how do you move from Camp Grumble to Camp Grace? Exactly what Jesus said. Repent, sinner. That's why he came. The problem is you have to see yourself as the sinner. And some of us might have to see that what our sin is, is good behavior that we think is earning our salvation. That's our sin. Our sin is we think we can do it ourselves. So I'll reiterate Paul's words. Your best attempts to earn your salvation mean nothing. They're nothing. The only way you go to the feast is to acknowledge that you have zero right to be there.
on when that grace washes over you. The only thing you can say is, I don't understand, Lord, why you would save me. I don't get it. But thank you. Now you can have everything I got. You can have it all. Thanks for watching this video. If you want to learn more about our church, go ahead and click the link in the description or head on over to experienceredemption.com. Have a great week, guys.